Welcome to the Good Old Days Podcast. I am Maggie Coomer. And I'm Jasmine Brand. And we have a fun episode for y'all today. We are going to be talking about Typhoid Mary. And this topic is particularly relevant in 2020, considering we are right smack dab in the middle of a pandemic. Would like to thank everyone who's listened to us so far and given us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you feel so inclined, please head to your, your favorite podcast platform and, and give us a five-star rating. It'll really help us get our name out there. So thank you all so much. Lots of stuff written about Typhoid Mary. Lots and lots and lots of stuff. Uh, a couple of sources that we we consulted, there is a book by Judith Levitt called Typhoid Mary, Captive to the Public's Health. Anthony Bourdain wrote a book about Typhoid Mary, which I loved. It was hysterical. And he approaches her as just a fellow cook, uh, a fellow a fellow chef. So that was a really interesting perspective. It it really humanized her in my eyes to read that that work. Jasmine, what were your, some of your favorite sources? So I really liked some of the po- other podcasts I listened to. There was one by the BBC Four. And again, it's really hard to get some of the dates right. So I think some of theirs are going to differ from ours, what we found. Um, but basically, I just went in and typed Typhoid Mary and listened to everything that was out there. There was even a really interesting take about the hauntings of Typhoid Mary, and we're not going to get into that. But it was it was different. And I also really like I'm a big primary source person. So I enjoyed going on Ancestry.com and finding her documents from Ellis Island, her death record even, and also Newspapers.com where I found an article out of Oklahoma comparing her to the Witches of Salem, which we'll get into more later. Speaking of primary sources, big one for me, George Soper, who is the uh, civil engineer that unearths Typhoid Mary, unearths Mary Mallon. We'll get into him here in just a moment. But uh, he writes uh, a pamphlet called The Curious Case of Typhoid Mary. Uh, Another primary source I loved was Mary Mallon's own words. She wrote a letter calling for her own release in 1909. So we will will dig into that a little bit later as well. Mary Mallon, born September 23rd, 1869 in a tiny town known as Cookstown in Tyrone in Northern Ireland. She immigrated to the U.S. in 1884. That puts her age around 15 years old when she makes it to the U.S. At this point in Ireland, there were few propertied young men because there was so little land to go around. After the famine years in Ireland, which is the late 1840s, many families sent their healthiest daughters, a.k.a. the ones who could make the grueling six-week boat trip to America. Uh, and this this lightened the load on the families back home. It gave the girls the opportunity to find employment. And by the 1870s, nearly a third, one-third of all money circulating in Ireland was being sent there by domestics back in the U.S., so we don't know for certain, but this was probably Mary's situation or Mary was just orphaned and, and went to the United States for uh, for new opportunities. And it's said that she's lived, she lives with an aunt, the onset of her of her arrival in the U.S. And Jasmine, what tell me about what Mary's life would have looked like as an Irish immigrant in the United States in the 1880s. What's what's happening around that time for Irish immigrants? 
Before Mary even gets off the boat, there's already a lot of stereotyping happening and a lot that's gone on that's going to impact her particular experience. And this goes back to that potato famine you mentioned in the 1840s. A million people die in Ireland and another million and a half leave leave the country for, well, all different countries. A lot of them will end up in the United States, though. So there is a huge influx of starving Irish men and women that will come to major port cities. So New York City, Boston, New Orleans. And, well, in fact, if we look at the statistics, the 1840s, 50% of all immigrants coming to the United States are Irish. And by the time Mary gets there, 40 years later, it's still about a third of the immigration. She shows up when she's about 15. It said she probably lived with an aunt, perhaps an uncle. And that's where she's going to land, try to get her feet under her. She's going to find steady work as a servant eventually gaining a promotion in the kitchen. So she picks up skills uh, and starts working as a cook. As of 1900, Mary Mallon is working for Mrs. Stryker's Employment Agency on 28th Street in New York. She's cooking for the New York City elite. Now, how this servant-employer relationship developed, you had a wealthy family who would contact one of these employment agencies and say, we need a cook, we need a butler, we need a footman. And the employment agency would send somebody to that family. So she's essentially, she's not a free agent. She's not being hired by these particular families per se. She is in the employ of this employment agency. We're not exactly sure when or where Mary gets typhoid. The leading theory is that she's actually born with it. There's a couple of different sources that say her mother had typhoid while she was pregnant with Mary and passed it on that way. And Mary herself never actually experienced any symptoms, just was an asymptomatic carrier for her entire life. Other theories say that because they can trace different cases back to about 1900 that she might have picked it up and again just been asymptomatic from that point and by then she's about 40 years old so I couldn't pinpoint anything to back up either theory but just something to think about as we go through this. So Mary pops up on the radar in 1906. This is happening in Oyster Bay, New York uh, during the summer of 1906. General William Henry Warren and his household of 11 uh, are stricken with typhoid. Six people in the house become ill. Now, the Warrens were renting this, this house from a New Yorker named George Thompson. And the presence of sickness worried him. What if people in town got word there's sickness at his house and he couldn't rent the place? So Thompson hires a civil sanitary engineer named George Soper after other investigators failed to find the source of contagion. What did people know about spreading disease at this point in history? So people don't know a whole lot about spreading disease at this point in history, although there had been big developments. So typhoid fever in itself in 1880 was discovered to be caused by microorganisms. And I'm not a scientist, so I won't get much more into it other than to say that. It's caused by these microorganisms, essentially bacteria that are known as Salmonella typhi. And there's two types, 
we're just going to go with that one. And that's where it also gets its name from. And it's passed through food and water contaminated by feces. Yum. They have a general idea that if you wash your hands, good hygiene practices will prevent you from getting diseases like typhoid fever. And that's also why this stereotype of being dirty also comes with typhoid fever. And so usually it's considered a quote-unquote poor people's disease. And that's why the Warren family, yeah, the Warren family is so outraged that it could enter their home because this is this like middle upper class family that it shouldn't have impacted. I, I I would say that it was in not not merely outrage. I think it was more the Thompson family who owned the house. They were fearful that people would start associating their summer home with disease and filth and poverty. You know, because people associated the disease with filth by and by extension with poor people who they considered to be dirty. Absolutely. And with the death rate, I mean, if we think of what we're going through now, the flu has, what is it, 0.1% or 0.01% fatality, and coronavirus is somewhere between 1% and 3%. Well, even after the discovery of the bacteria that's causing typhoid fever, there is still a 10% death rate. That's terrifying. Now, prior to the 1840s, the dominant theory of how disease was spread was called miasma. And this is essentially clouds of noxious vapors were going around infecting people. Where there was filth, there would be disease, and those clouds could be, you know, could carry that disease to other other people. Things start to evolve in the 1840s when a man named Dr. John Snow tracks a cholera epidemic in Soho, London back to the source of a water well that was infecting people. Also in the mid-1800s, you have uh, Louis Pasteur. He's experimenting with microorganisms through the process of of quote-unquote pasteurization, which would be named after him. So essentially this means cooked food kills bacteria, uncooked food does not. Oh, and a little fun fact for you, Mary's best dish was peach ice cream. 1884, Robert Koch identifies the bacteria that causes tuberculosis and cholera. So this microorganism bacteria theory, germ theory, is really gaining steam. However, people are still slow to catch on. Surgeons in the 1890s are still performing surgery without masks and proper surgical garments. So if that's how the medical community is approaching things... Imagine what the general public thought about all of this. In 1906, the idea that there could be a healthy carrier of disease spreading it through the community was foreign, even to most scientists. But as Soper himself describes it, he was, quote unquote, familiar with the idea. When Soper arrives at the Thompson household, he starts first by walking through the evidence uncovered by previous investigators and this is this is what he does in his own words so i turn my attention from the well the overhead tank the cesspool the privy the manure on the lawn the food supplies the bathing and sanitary conditions of the neighboring property to the people in the house i thought it was probable that some outside event something outside the usual routine of this well-regulated household had occurred a little before the outbreak began. 
had a carrier come into the house. So Soper goes through all of the servants listed as living in the house at the time the outbreak started, and they find he finds that the Warrens had hired a new cook three weeks before the outbreak started. She was the only person from the household, the Warren household, he had not yet taken samples from her. The family identified the cook as Mary Mallon. Mary started working for the Warren family on August 4th, 1906. The first person got sick on August 27th, the last on September 3rd. She left the family not long after the outbreak, and this might cause you to raise your eyebrows. She left right after this outbreak started? That that would not have been out of the ordinary to anyone. Number one, Mary wasn't sick, so no one would have associated her with the sickness. All right? You don't have the symptoms. You're not sick in the eyes of many. But that's what you did. If there was a disease-ridden household, you got the heck out of Dodge. You left and you went where there was no disease. So Mary was long gone. But she's got to think she's got the worst luck in the world or is the luckiest person in the world by this point. So the family informed Soper they had hired their cook for Mr. Stryker's, Mrs. Stryker's agency in, in New York City. We've already told you about Stryker's agency. So Soper goes to their office on 28th Street. He explains the situation. He recounts the outbreak. And the agency hands over Mary's references. And what he finds will shock him and convince him that Mary was responsible for the Warren family typhoid outbreak as well as uh, several other outbreaks in the New York City area. So between 1900 and 1906, Mary Mallon worked for eight households in New York. Seven of those households experienced typhoid outbreaks. From there, Soper tracks Mary to a house owned by a man named Walter Bowen. He finds her working in the kitchen, as to be expected. And Bowen's daughter had just died of typhoid. Also, a chambermaid was currently ill with the disease. So his theory is already fitting. And his description of her will be as follows. I first saw Mary Mallon 32 years ago. That is in 1907. She was then about 40 years of age and at the height of her physical and mental faculties. She was five feet, six inches tall, a blonde with clear blue eyes, a healthy color and somewhat determined mouth and jaw. Mary had a good figure and might have been called athletic if she had not been a little too heavy. She prided herself on her strength and endurance, and at the time, and for many years thereafter, never spared herself in the exercise of it. Nothing was so distinctive about her as her walk, unless if it was her mind. The two had a peculiarity in common— those who knew her best in the long years of her custody said Mary walked more like a man than a woman, and her mind had distinctively a masculine character also. When Soper came face to face with Mary in the spring of 1907, he suspected she'd already infected 22 people, including one fatality. Their first meeting was not pleasant. He waltzes into the kitchen where Mary is working. He solicits blood, urine, and stool samples from her right there in her place of employment. But not before he informs her that she's been spreading typhoid fever to all, every family that she's cooked for over the past six years. Understandably, Mary flips out. And keep in mind, 
Mary was a marvel to the medical community at the time. No one had ever identified a healthy carrier of typhoid or of any disease for that matter. So Soper's really enthusiastic and he's confused as to why she's upset. But Mary comes at him with a, with a carving fork or a carving knife or a meat cleaver, depending on what account you read. And Soper retreats. He's dejected. He's confused. Why would Mary react this way? He's only trying to help. And he's so he's so dramatic about it. He's like, I was so lucky to escape with my life. It's like, what? What? <laughs> now, Soper's going to try again, obviously, to obtain these samples from Mary. But he has to change his tactics. He doesn't want to be chased out with a carving fork again. So what Soper is going to do, he tracks Mary down at a boarding house. It turns out. Mary liked to spend her nights with a man named Mr. Behoff. And it looks like Behoff was Mary's boyfriend. Behoff had a little bit of a, a drinking problem. And so Soper's going to corner Behoff at his, his local hangout. It's a pub, at the, pub on the corner, right around the corner from the boarding house. Soper allegedly buys him some drinks, chats him up, until Behoff takes Soper back to the boarding room that he shared with Mary. Soper described the room, again, as filthy. And side note, Mary had a a big dog that she was uh, supposedly very fond of, which makes me, you know, I I feel that. Uh, Soper Soper gets Beehoff to arrange a meeting, a.k.a. not warn, not tip Mary off that Soper and a medical professional will be waiting to ambush her at her love nest. So when, when Soper encounters Mary for the second time, this is what he has to say about it. She denied she knew anything about typhoid. She had never had it or produced it. There had been no more typhoid where she was than anywhere else. There was typhoid fever everywhere. No one had ever accused her of causing any cases or had any occasion to do so. Such a thing had never been heard of. She was in perfect health and there was no sign of symptom or any disease about her. And she would not allow anybody to accuse her. Again, I saw I was making no headway. So Dr. Hubler and I left, followed by a volley of imprecations from the head of the stairs. And I think part of the reason that she's reacting this way is references were everything. If he's going back to those families and saying, hey, I think your cook caused typhoid, well, she would lose those references and therefore work in the future. This was her entire livelihood. So Soper is turned away once again by Mary. She's not going to hand over her samples. And at this point, Soper is going to get the New York City Health Commissioner involved. This man's name was Thomas Darlington. Essentially, Soper says that Mary is refusing to cooperate. She is spreading this harmful disease. They need to arrest her. She's a menace to society. Get her off of the streets. Uh, Soper essentially is afraid that Mary's about to be at the head of a major epidemic. You know, if the, the, the circumstances were 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 appropriate for it, meaning she's cooking for uh, a large amount of people, say, at a hospital or a hotel, you know, there could be there could be some disastrous implications here. So Darlington is going to dispatch Dr. Uh, S. Josephine Baker. Fun fact, Dr. Baker actually studied at the Medical College of the New York Infirmary Hospital. That was established by Elizabeth Blackwell, who was the first American woman to go to med school. And she is a super interesting character. We'll have to cover her on an episode because she's just really impressive. 
So Dr. Baker, again, she's Mary is still working at the home of Walter Bowen at this point. So Dr. Baker goes to the home of Walter Bowen, which, I mean, can you imagine like what the Bowens must have been thinking throughout this whole ordeal? I mean, I I just I don't I, I would like to be a fly on the wall in that house. You know, I mean, they continue to employ her even after. So I'm wondering if they didn't believe it either because she wasn't sick. I think a lot of people didn't believe it. It's while well, we still have people that don't believe that germs are a real thing. And I know that's very reductive, but you know, there's, there's a lot of suspicion over any kind of major disease outbreak and what information we're getting on that disease outbreak. Dr. Baker tries to persuade Mary to cooperate, but Mary slams the door in her face. So the next day, Dr. Baker comes back. But this time, she comes back with an ambulance and five policemen, and they're going to take Mary into custody. Except Mary's not going to go down without a fight. Mary bolts. She runs out the back of the kitchen, jumps over a fence, and it takes three hours for Dr. Baker and the police to find her. It turns out she had been hiding in an outhouse with a chair propped up against the door, which to me implies help from a third party. Per Soper... Quote, it took, in the end, five strong New York City police officers and Dr. Baker to subdue her. And Baker said, I sat on her all the way to the hospital. So (laughs) they had to forcefully take her to the hospital and forcefully take samples from her. Again, this is blood, urine, and feces. And Soper refers to her as a wild, or no, a caged wild cat. Yeah, Soper refers to her as a caged wildcat during all of this. Well, I mean, okay, I'm trying to I'm trying to put myself in old Mary's shoes here. And if someone tried to do that to me, you best believe I would come out swinging. So I can't I can't blame her at all, you know, especially if I didn't understand what these people were telling me and they didn't understand it either because they just, you know, they just now are learning about the science. You know, I don't know. I Yeah, Soper's like, hey, I read this article from this guy in Germany and I think you're carrying disease even though you don't look like you are. Yeah. <laughs> I would be pretty upset. Yeah. I mean, he turns out to be right, but damn you know i mean I, I can see why she would react so ferociously you know the guy's ruining your life and then they they want to do what you want to take what yeah so no yeah. discretion that's the thing i think there's no discretion and if it had been approached differently yeah. there might have been a different outcome yeah oh i absolutely agree with you um because mary's going to be distrustful of of authority just just from the guise of being an Irish immigrant in the United States. You know, it's like everyone has an ulterior motive. All right. So they end up taking her to Willard Parker Hospital. She spends several weeks there and they take uh, samples three times a week. It's interesting to note that most of the samples they took from her did contain, were positive for the typhoid bacteria. However, there were a few samples that came back as negative. So that's kind of weird. But Soper said he again tried to reason with her after that initial three-week period at the Willard Parker Hospital. Says he tries to reason with her, explains that she needs to wash her hands before she preps food, but Mary won't speak to him. Side note, during this conversation, in Soper's own words, he said that he told Mary, I plan to write a book about you, but I won't use your real name. The book is called Typhoid Mary. <laughs> I mean, what are you doing? So I I can't blame her. He in in the same breath as he's trying to get her to 
to ch- make changes to her behavior, he's telling her he's going to write a tell-all book about her. So she's probably like, this guy needs to get the hell out of here. It's after that period that they send her to North Brother Island on the East River. This is a little island purchased by this uh, city of New York uh, as a part of Riverside Hospital. It's used for patients inflicted with infectious diseases, i.e. typhoid, i.e. cholera, smallpox, scarlet fever, yellow fever. Okay. So, Jasmine, tell us about North Brother Island. I can say it's described as this dreary little island where basically fun goes to die. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that's in a couple of different articles. Again, reading through newspapers.com, there's one that just makes it out to be like the worst place in the world and you wouldn't want to go there. And it's in an article, interestingly enough, that is telling you how not to be a quote unquote typhoid Mary. And it says that, you don't have to be a woman to be a typhoid Mary. Anyone can be a carrier. Isn't that interesting that they had to say you don't have to be a woman to be a typhoid Mary? As if this was like, oh, I'm not a... Were people saying that? I'm not a woman. I'm not carrying typhoid. <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah, they must have been. It's like, oh, it's typhoid Mary. I'm not a Mary. So it's it's that case. And that also brings up a really interesting point. And this is a whole side side note. But with servitude, and this wasn't as common in American households, but definitely in British households, they often would give all the servants one name. So all the women would be Mary, all the men would be, I don't know, Tom, and that's how they identified them. So by saying that someone could be a typhoid Mary, it's kind of tying back to that idea of servitude, that idea that it's poor people and it's immigrants that are carriers of this disease. So it's, again, adding that little element of fear without directly blaming it on anyone. Uh, According to Sober, Mary was given a tiny house that was usually reserved for head nurses on the island. It's described as a bungalow. In my mind, a bungalow is you know, a fun place for vacation. So I'm just going to say, I'm going to call it a tiny house. But uh, Mary spends three years during this. This is her first confinement because the city officials, they literally have, they have no idea what to do with her. So she just sits on this island by herself without any, she hires a lawyer uh, to sue for her release, but that's in 1909. So that's about two years after she's first confined on North Brother Island and the Supreme Court, the New York Supreme Court strikes down her, her case. They're, they, they declare her as a menace to society. They, they, they feel like to release her would be a risk to public health. So she, she continues her confinement on the island. It'll be a short time after this, in early 1910, New York, the New York City Health Department gets a new commissioner. And that man's name is Ernest J. Letterly. And it'll be Mr. Letterly who actually releases Mary. So this is just a few months after her case is struck down by the New York Supreme Court. And he releases her on the condition that she won't cook for any, anyone anymore. So no more, no more career as a cook. His statements that he releases at the time really highlight that he's not sure what she's going to do with her life. He's like, I'm not sure what she's going to do, as there are not many occupations where she can maintain the standard of living that she's become accustomed to. Remember what we said, she's making 45 bucks a week. That is, that is a lot for a servant in, 19, in 1900. He does help her get a job in a laundry. 
and she's expected to report to the health department every three months. Now, according to Soper, she immediately disregarded her end of the bargain and changed her name and began to cook and cooked for the next five years. However, I did note that Mary filed a civil suit against the city of New York in 1911 for $50,000. So she at least was still around for that. Um, But the case is ultimately thrown out. And yeah, they lose track of her after that. Well, and from her point of view, in a letter she writes during her confinement and all of this is going on, she says she was kidnapped. So she's been essentially detained against her will, held illegally, and a lot of the newspapers are agreeing with her. Yeah, absolutely. The public opinion's on her side at this point. Well, most, most public opinion. They lose track of Mary. So we're wandering around 1915, 19, or 1913, 1914, 1915, go by. All of a sudden, Sloan Maternity Hospital in Manhattan has a typhoid outbreak. 25 people, including staff and patients, come down with typhoid. Two of them die. And it takes absolutely no time for health officials to locate a newly hired cook named Mary Brown. And guess who that turned out to be, Jasmine? Oh, Mary Mallon? <laughs> yep, you're exactly right. And this is the moment when the New York press turns on her. On our cover art for this episode, there's a, a picture of a woman cracking skulls into a, a frying pan. When you when you saw that, Jasmine, what what went through your mind? What what? Tell me what you thought of that that drawing, that cartoon. It's essentially a woman serving up death, right? That's what it's supposed to depict, and she's very calm about it. It's eerie almost. So at this point, Mary is again taken into custody, and she'll be taken back to North Brother Island. Only this time, there is there's no release for her. She'll spend the next 23 years in captivity. She suffered a stroke in 1932, ends up in a convalescent home uh, at Riverside for the next five years, and she finally passes away in 1938. Now, accounts of her second confinement state that she went easy this time. And it kind of sounds like, I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to, it, it seems like she was more complacent with her, with her fate after that. Like she had tried, I, I think, cause she, she apparently was cooking in hotels and hospitals and these are, these are going to be lower posts than she's used to, right? You're not going to be making the same kind of money that you're making, you know, on Park Avenue cooking for a wealthy family. So I imagine having to move around, change your name for five years and making peanuts. Her life was over at that point when they caught up with her and and she's in a maternity hospital, a hospital for pregnant women and 25 people are sick. I imagine. I don't know. I mean, this is obviously this is a terrible thing. She had to know that she was she was responsible for this. But I think her spirit was broken. I think that was it. And for the next 23 years, her life is very quiet. Uh, some people describe that she's able to leave the island, that she has sort of a an unspoken agreement with people. She can go for day trips. Apparently, she was still cooking, uh, baking cakes for people on the island, other other people who are being sequestered uh, because of their infectious diseases or, or, or whatnot, uh, which is still a risky, a risky proposition, in my opinion. Yes, it's like, we got TB, why not? <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, okay, if I have tuberculosis and you bring me a red velvet cake, I'm going to eat that red velvet cake, you know, I, I, I'm going to. 
Yeah, exactly. I found her obituary as well, and it's a really short one. It just says, Typhoid Mary dies. New York, Typhoid Mary Mallon. 70, a medical prisoner of health authorities for a quarter century because she was an innocent carrier of typhoid fever germs, died here. That's it. She left behind a relatively substantial estate. I was actually pretty, pretty surprised. So she, some accounts say that she was forced to work in the laboratory for Riverside Hospital. Others say that that was the job she was given and she was paid for her work. Either way, at the end of her life, she left roughly $4,600 behind. So that's in 1938. Not bad. That's about $84,000 in today's cash. Uh, with that money, she paid for uh, her own burial in St. Raymond C- Cemetery, left $4,000 to a friend she made while in confinement. And on her gravestone that she bought for herself, she the only words are, Jesus mercy. I found the friend's name. It was Adelaide Jeffspring, which I thought was an interesting name. I like the name Adelaide. I, I do, too. Name. Let's talk about how we remember Typhoid Mary in today's world. Most people haven't heard of her, right? I mean, most people don't know anything about her outside the name Typhoid Mary. You know, people use it as a joke. Jasmine, do you think that the government officials were right to confine her for refusing to wash her hands and going carrying on about her life? No, not for that length of time. And that's a really hard question to answer because it plays into the rights of many over the rights of one. But... I think, you know, and we've been really getting into this with what's going on right now. I think that they were right to perhaps keep tabs on her and try and educate her and try and give her all of her tools. But I don't think that being held in essentially false imprisonment was okay to do. To kind of prove that point all of the newspapers are reporting, and I know the media is not always the best source to go off of, but all the newspapers are reporting her as a prisoner. No one really knows why. No one really agrees with it, even though they can justify it because it's for public safety. And on top of that, in the time since Mary had been identified as a carrier to, I think, her death, over 400 other people in New York alone had been identified as carriers. Not one of those other people were confined in the same way she was. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and there was a vaccine developed in 1911, though. it's It seems like it was pretty hit or miss. So, yeah, 400 other healthy carriers, not one forced into confinement and isolation. Well, what do you do, I guess? You know, what are what are your choices? What... I know. What do you think on that? Well, I mean, this case definitely ignited a debate in the early 1900s about is it all right to curtail the rights of a few for the overall well-being of the many? And I mean, in the United States, we've had that argument time and time again, you know, with Japanese internment camps, with the AIDS epidemic in the 1990s, 1980s, 1990s, uh, with post 9-11 with the Patriot Act and then all the way up to 2020, you know, with with this whole mask debacle. Uh, what are we able to do as a society to protect society as a whole? But what do we have to give up? What what kind of personal liberties, personal freedoms are we expected to give up? Is that right? Is it not? I don't think there's a, a correct answer. I think it's 
I think it's looking at a particular situation, doing the best that you can, trying to harm as few people as possible and and moving forward. But I that's this is just a tragic, tragic case. To add to that, though, if there's something the individual can do to help protect the whole, I think that should be taken. Like if Mary had washed her hands and not been a cook, that would have been fine. If we wear our masks, whether you agree they help or not. Yeah, I I, I agree. And, you know, even we didn't bring up the gallbladder thing, but they they many of the doctors that were consulting with typhoid. Were, I'm just going to say Mary because she hated that nickname. It's a, it was a nickname that was designated by press, you know, and that sucks that that's all, all she's remembered for. But Mary, Mary Mallon, they said, that, you know, the source of infection may be in her gallbladder. If you remove your gallbladder, it may or may not fix the problem. And she refused to, she refused to entertain that idea. But I, I don't think I can really blame her. I mean, surgery in the early 1900s was not popular well surgery wasn't it it wasn't like you go today I mean the whole idea of going to medical school medical school was rather new it used to be a well it had been I should say a trade position where you would learn it from somewhere else rather than go through a series of tests and academia and everything like you would to today so I understand suspicion around surgery I mean even now and I know people are go through it all the time I'm still a little scared of it so I can't imagine uh, over a hundred years ago when Listerine was the best they had for some disinfectant and uh, <laughs> pre- prevent you from getting uh, infection, what would have been going through her head? But still, it goes to what is your personal responsibility if you uh, can be responsible for hurting many, many people? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. You made a great point there. Well, thank you all so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please follow us on all our socials, Instagram and Facebook. It's the good old days pod Twitter. It's the good OD pod. And if you want to email us any questions or suggestions for future episodes, it's the good old days pod at gmail.com. If you liked this episode, if you want us to continue putting out great content, we really appreciate those reviews because it helps get our name out there. Thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you all so much. Bye. Bye. Bye.